Welcome to Consilience, an African science podcast, brought to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. Consilience is a weekly podcast dedicated to promoting reason, skepticism, and a scientific worldview in Africa and beyond. Welcome to Consilience. Today is October 24th, 2012, and I'm Owen Swart. Joining me today are Patrick Till. Hi, guys. Dion Barnard. How's it? And Chris Cham. Ahoy. Right, well, listeners, you know it's been quite a while since we've uh, we've been on the air, and um, we uh, just wanted to let you know that that's because we've been having a couple of changes here at the Consilience uh, Mansion. Um, the the meetings have had to to kind of take a step back, and and uh, they'll still be joining us from time to time, but they won't be able to be here every episode. Um, so we've expanded our panel of contributors to include a couple of awesome new guys. And uh, and, and first, let's take a look at Patrick. Patrick, uh, hi, welcome. Ah, how's it going? Awesome. So, so tell us a little about yourself. What what brings you to uh, to consilience? I think it was a royal command or something. Well, that's true. It was a royal command. But but before that, <laughs> what what has what has led you to become a skeptic? Um, I suppose I've always been a skeptic in one way or another. I've never really gone deep into any particular belief. I've sort of floated on the surface, tried things, always wondered why this belief that I'm supposed to have, this experience I'm supposed to have. Why am I not as happy as those so-called people out there? And so I've changed one after another after another, gone from Methodist to Christian science at one time, um, chaos magic, paganism, and now skepticism. Awesome. How's it fitting? Oh, it's fitting good. (laughs) That's what she said. Uh, and our, our other new contributor is Dion Barnard, who some of our listeners may recognize from our sister podcast, Primordial Soup. Uh, Dion, welcome. Awesome to be here. Thanks, Owen. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, and why don't you tell us a bit about about yourself for those those who, who don't already know? I have never been involved in chaos magic, paganism, <laughs> or any of those other <coughs> universalist things. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, I, I was in full-time ministry. That's how I started my life, straight out of school. Full-time ministry for about 13 years. I was a missionary. I was a pastor. I was a teacher and a preacher. And, uh, and, and effectively deconverted over a couple of years. Woke up one day and realized I, I was an atheist. Having read Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. Awesome. And uh, well, that's that's where I am on the faith side. So I'm I'm now faithless, godless, and enjoying life. Excellent. And uh, outside of that, I um, I founded the, uh, the Rumbles Rumble in the Pub mm-hmm. concept. Right, right. Uh, it was kind of an offshoot of the of the, the Skeptics in the Pub, kind of. Yes. It, in fact, uh, I'd come to visit you guys at Skeptics in the Pub the week before, having sort of now made a discovery that. Uh, I needed to surround myself, surround myself with uh, some skeptically minded folk and uh, enjoyed the night, except uh, felt I wanted more structure. Mm. I, I guess it was my church background <laughs> and uh, w- w- wanted a bit of structure. So decided to put a new group together called Rumble in the Pub. And, and it's a very structured debate, really. Mm-hmm. And that's been going now for a few years. And we, we uh, have a group in Sweden. We have... Uh, a group in Joburg. We, it looks like we may have a group in London soon. We, mm. we just heard that piece of news today. And uh, and uh, there's someone in Durban trying to get one going. So it looks like we've, we've gone international with this concept. Excellent. So t- 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 tell the listeners a little more about Rumble. So, so what kind of topics do you discuss there? Or do we discuss? Because I, I go to Rumble too, but <laughs> you, you might know more about it than I do. So Rumble 
it, it's a great opportunity for people from all backgrounds, even former um, pagans and chaos magicians, um, <laughs> to to arrive and and really just discuss anything. So so what we do is we we kind of do a little vote online, or we we get folks' opinions about what they'd like to discuss. Um, and we usually pick two topics for the night and spend an hour or so on each topic in a very structured way. Everyone has a card. There's a card system. And uh, to give your opinion, you've got to throw your card into a bowl and wait your turn. So everyone has to listen and everyone has to speak. And uh, it's it turned out to be a great uh, event. I mean, we have theists, we have non-theists, we have uh, people from all walks of life. And we debate things from uh, religion to uh, politics to social uh, situations to marriage to sex and uh, there's no topic we don't tackle and it's it's always a lot of fun yeah yeah it is a lot of fun there's a really nice social group at least in, in the Joburg group i can't speak for the others but uh, there's a very nice group of people and uh, mm -hmm. I, I enjoy rumble if, if only for the social aspect but the topics are always stimulating it's always good well the swedish group's quite good because all the women are naked oh that's always good yeah because that's how it is in sweden of course. <laughs> <laughs> women don't wear clothes there isn't it a bit they're, cold, they're, though? They're basically Ferengi, is what you're saying. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, of course, Dion, you're the host of, of Primordial Soup. That I, that I am. So, yeah, shortly after starting uh, uh, Rumbles, decided that uh, another way to rant a little and, and get some of my embarrassment and anger at, at the last 14 years of my life off my chest was to uh, hook up with a good friend of mine, Brian Cochlin, who lives in Sweden, and was uh, with me in ministry and deconverted in a similar way and, and, and has had a very similar walk. So Brian and I decided to, uh, to launch a podcast, an atheist podcast, that was just really quite relaxed, quite casual, mm -hmm. uh, quite unscripted. And we've kept to that sort of approach. And, uh, and we're going strong, enjoying it. Yeah. It's a good show, and uh, you're you're on that show with us too. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, I quite enjoy it. It's one of my favorite podcasts. <laughs> you're like you're a bit like a Klingon. I just can't get rid of you. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> when when you guys launched Primordial Soup, it was just before we, we launched uh, Consilience, and that wasn't a coincidence. Uh, the the Meetons and I had kind of been talking about starting our own uh, podcast for some time. I mean, we'd been throwing the idea back and forth, and we sort of our ideas were starting to coalesce, and we had some ideas about how we were actually going to do it. And then you guys came out with your first episode, and we thought, oh crap. Now we need to do it. We beat you to it. <laughs> we don't Absolutely. have any. We don't have any excuses anymore. <laughs> These guys can do it. Then obviously we can do it too. So within a few weeks, we'd we uh, recorded our first couple of episodes. So that was that was good. You gave us a, a much needed kick in the pants. Good. Glad glad to be of service. Oh, awesome. All right. Well, let's get started with tonight's episode. And and our first segment, as always, is teaching Angela to appreciate history. So who's going to play Angela this week? I think that's you, Patrick. Oh no! So, <laughs> thanks for volunteering. So, so that means you just have to sit there and pretend not to appreciate history. Yeah, I don't like history. <laughs> <laughs> hate it. I'm already hating this past. <laughs> don't be a hater. And and one of us, I think it's Chris this week, will will uh, educate you as to why history is important yeah. and why we should pay attention to it. Sure. All right. Well, um, on this day in 1851, so the the, the 24th of October, 1851 was the formal discovery by William Lassell of Ariel and Umbriel, which are two moons of Uranus. Note the pronunciation there. U Uranus. Yes. Uranus. Uh, is okay. that the correct pronunciation? <laughs> it is now. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, Lassell's kind of interesting. Um, he made his fortune in the uh, early 1800s uh, with beer brewing in, in the Liverpool area. Um, and uh, he sort of industrialized his beer brewing process and made a lot of money from that. And that gave him the freedom to build his own observatories, multiple observatories, one in or, or just outside of Liverpool and one in Malta a few years later. And he also built his own telescopes. He, he um, ground and polished uh, his own lenses and things like that. Awesome. Um, and the telescopes he built were really large for their day. Um, and they were also very highly mechanized. Hmm. Um, they had you know, steam-powered um, turning, uh, rotating mechanisms and Jeez. things like that. Um, so they, they were quite advanced. And so, you know, he was, he was sort of applying exactly the same sort of industrial revolution stuff that had made his beer brewing work apply to his astronomy as well. And as a result, he was suddenly much more effective than a lot of his predecessors had been. Um, not only did he discover Ariel and Umbriel, but uh, he had also previously discovered uh, Neptune's moon Triton, which was only 17 days after Neptune itself had been discovered by someone else. Um, so he got onto that one really quickly. And he also found Saturn's moon Hyperion. Mm. Um, Ariel and Umbriel are kind of interesting because they are the uh, fourth and third largest moons of Uranus by volume, by size. Okay. Uh, but the third and fourth most massive. Um, so sort of huh. the other way around. Okay. Uh, and the reason for that is that uh, uh, Umbriel is made of some sort of denser material. Um, Jeez. Okay. We don't know exactly what though because... The brains of Republicans? It's entirely possible. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Improbable, but possible. <laughs> um, Can't rule it out. <laughs> so what you're telling me is these very heavy, dense things floating around Uranus. Yes, lots of them, which were discovered in the 1850s, yes, <laughs> by industrial processes. Um, what we do know is that most of the content of both of them is actually water ice. Oh, uh, we don't okay. know a hell of a lot else, though, because apart from our, our sort of long-distance telescope views of them, they've only actually been visited once, mm. which was when um, Voyager 2 passed by Uranus in uh, eight, uh, 1986. Right, right. And that's that's the closest we've ever been to them. That's the best views we've ever, uh, ever had of them. No, that, that was uh, just a speeding flyby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It, it, was, it was January 1986, so mm -hmm. it was less than a month right. um, of good close-up views. Um and apart from that, we don't really know an awful lot more about them. Um, there was some talk about uh, sending the Cassini probe that's currently around Saturn, uh, sending it off to Uranus um, when it's done with Saturn. Interesting. Uh, but that plan's been scrapped. Uh, oh. it, would, it, would, it would have been a 20-year trip just from Saturn to Uranus. Hmm. Um, and, yeah, instead they've decided they're going to lower and lower and lower uh, Cassini's orbit around Saturn, so it's yeah. eventually going into the atmosphere and they can get some atmospheric readings there. Nice, nice. Much quicker than waiting 20 years for the next thing. Yeah, I guess. Uh, there's a couple other vague plans to visit Uranus on the drawing board, but uh, none of them are likely to do anything before 2020. And when they do, it's going to be a 13, 14, 15, 17 year voyage out anyway. So it's going to be a while before we get any, any closer views of those two moons and, and any other moons of Uranus. Mm. So what are they expecting to see? Just to get a closer look of what's out there, what's yeah, so, made out of? Like, yeah, so some, they're not some, expecting water or laugh or anything like well, that. We know, we know well, there's water. We know there's water ice, but uh, further details, geological details mostly, I suppose. Similar to what um, Galileo did around uh, the, the, the Jupiter collection of moons and what Cassini is currently doing around Saturn. Similar sort of idea, but around Eurus. Um, and then maybe one day around Neptune as well, because that would be similarly interesting. Mm -hmm. But that's even further away. That's going to be 
a 20 to 25 uh, year voyage out. Jeez. So yeah, it's difficult to, to, to test these things. We need something that can travel these, speed these ships a little bit faster. Some sort yeah. of warp drive or something. Oh, I wonder if we have any news stories about that this week. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, awesome. Thanks, Chris. That's brilliant. Sure. sure. And let's hope that that helps Andrew to appreciate history. Um, speaking of oh, moving to the present, I have a quick update about a story that we've been covering a lot. Uh, these these Satanism murders, which is which are not Satanism murders. It's just bullshit. <sighs> yeah, exactly. Um, there there has been. I mean, you may have seen in the news there have been a couple of updates, but there there really isn't any information. It's really just journalists harassing the police for for information, demanding that they they produce the. Uh, more details about these the supposed occult killer but the police rightfully are refusing to do so because there probably isn't even one but there has been an excellent blog post on the subject from the news 24 blogs section uh, it's called deliver us from absurdity and we'll, we'll post the link to that in the show notes i'm reading here the article whilst we're talking i see here that they suspect there's eighty thousand satanists in south africa yeah, that, that's what the cops claim. Oh, what a load is the, of crap. The cops are claiming that. <laughs> I think so. Is, is, that, is that what you say? Is it? Or oh, is oh, that no, the, the ministry not, involved? That's right. It's not the cops. It was the ministry. Okay. All right. Yes. That, yeah. That's, that's yeah. a little less worrying. Yeah. The, 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 the deliverance <laughs> ministry. Yes. Yeah. Well, what is worrying is that, is that there are at least some some signs that the uh, the cops are getting some of their information from the deliverance ministry. Um, which is worrying, but let's hope that they, they don't take that too seriously. Well, look, in, in uh, 1987... I was in Standard 7. Mm. That's the only way I ever remember those years. <laughs> um, uh, there was a big hoo-ha about Satanism around Benoni at the time. Yeah. And uh, there were all sorts of news articles. My mother was the editor of the Benoni City Times at the time. Oh, wow. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we all got caught up in uh, this paranoia. Oh, um, what had happened was there were reports about dog-like uh, Beings, uh, things, shadows that look like dogs walking on their hind legs. Chupacabras. Um, <laughs> or, or cobalt. Yeah, yeah. Um, walking around the mine dumps of Benoni oh, yeah. and, and living in the caves and doing, and, and Satanists doing satanic rites. Um, and there must have been a good three or four weeks of these stories. And of course, the moment the first one was published, which was a rumor about something that someone said, but effectively, um, once the story was published, and it was obviously just like a little sixth page, little five-liner about some idea that someone had that something sinister was going on on the mine dumps, and it's probably just some homeless guy sitting in a cave. Mm. Or a um, dog. Or a dog. <laughs> Not walking on its hind legs, yeah. for instance. Or, um, or potentially even just a dog walking on its hind legs. Yeah. <laughs> that, that would be less crazy. Mon yes, monkeys. Yes. I think they're monkeys. <laughs> well... You know, then it just spread like wildfire. Yeah. Um, suddenly, everyone was writing in. Everyone knew someone who was part of those things. Mm. Uh, Benoni was the capital of Satanism in South Africa, suddenly. Um, but, it, of course, nobody had ever met a Satanist no. uh, directly. Um, they just all knew these facts somehow, you know. Yeah, yeah. Facts like uh, there are 80,000 Satanists in South Africa. I wonder mm. if they know that they're there. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Well, this this article this lists say uh, a set of criteria for for what is what makes a satanist, mm -hmm. uh, as put forward by one of these deliver, deliverance ministry people. You've got it in front of you there, Patrick. Yeah, you want to give us some? Yeah, we see here we've got severe mood swings, a drop in school marks, intense introspection, 
depression, sleep disturbances, frequent nightmares. Sounds like my ex-wife. <laughs> She's sounds, a Satanist. Yeah. Sounds like any teenager ever, really. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, that's uh, adolescence. <laughs> well, the, always the question is, how do you identify what a Satanist is? Now, in my uh, trips through paganism, I've met a few Satanists. Mm. And there's one thing I noted uh, that they say here, they're always dressing black on this news article. Every Satanist I know always dresses in white. <laughs> Interesting. It's a clear thing. If they're not in white, they can't be Satanists. That's the first step. So I was not aware is, of that. Is, is there a reason for it? Why do they choose white? Because of the purity. They remember that it's a, the the Satan. Satan's supposed to be the first angel of sure, Christ, sure. and they're trying to elevate elevate him back up to that position. Okay. Right. So it's white, it's purity, okay. it's love, it's music. Okay, that's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. And ironically, the uh, the Christian priests all wear black. Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> with it's tight true. collars. It's true. I okay. notice also a few other things here: lack of empathy, suicidal tendencies, a use of illegal drugs, uh, evidence of cruelty to animals. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff here. But what worries me the most is not just so much of looking at these things and saying, "Okay, Satanism," or maybe it's a teenage thing. Mm. Uh, this is also um, uh, hiding the underlying problems. You might have actually mm. have psychological yeah. problems here that are being ignored yeah. for some random guess. Yeah, think yeah. Th things that could be treated in some way. Yeah. You, you could actually help the person with yeah. this stuff. Some of those instead sound, sound, of yeah. well, what what do you what do you actually do with a um, a Satanist? Well, you know, how do you how do you fix them in the deliverance ministries? You you perspective. Exor you exorcise them. Yeah. You, you are screaming at them. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. and you know that's clearly not going to help. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some of these things. I mean, some of them are just ordinary. What do they call symptoms of life? You know, things that that happen to everybody. It's moodiness. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But some of them really sound like symptoms of mental illness. These people, a couple of them, even like psychopathy. These people require treatment. Some of the, you know, some of these things. If people have these things, they should be institutionalized mm -hmm. because yeah. they're potentially a danger to themselves or others. In in a way, they're they're sort of preying on the the most vulnerable there. Yeah, true. Well, it just reminds me of the of the uh, very ancient belief that um, um, epileptic symptoms are demonic possessions. That's exactly it, yeah. You know, and uh, if we're still thinking like that in the year 2012, it really is a sad, sad state of affairs. Yeah, indeed. And it's not just epilepsy. I mean, one of the things on the list there was uh, facial tics and, and, and that kind of thing. I mean, that, that could just be an ordinary twitch, but it could also be Tourette's or mm. some other kind of neurological disease. Uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or even a, a form of epilepsy. I mean, some some forms of epilepsy do manifest that way. Unusual body movements such mm. as twitching, ticks, rocking, glazed eyes, head banging, moaning, groaning, and chanting. Right, exactly. Teenagers yeah. moaning and groaning. <laughs> mosh pits, head, yeah. mosh pits. Head banging. Oh crap! <laughs> I used to be a metalhead. <laughs> I must be a satanist. I'm, I'm surprised they didn't have moonwalking amongst <laughs> unusual movements. Yes, <laughs> that's a good point. Maybe they didn't think of that. <laughs> Here's an interesting one. Different sexually transmitted diseases. Different from what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't have the answer to that question. Jeez. <laughs> oh, All right. Well, so, so we'll continue to keep an eye on this whole thing, and, and we'll, we'll let you know if anything more substantial comes up. Um, hopefully, this is not drawing to a close. But it's not really showing any signs of that happening. The only thing that worries me the most, about apart from all this, is in this country, in South Africa, and in most of Africa, 
people are still being burnt and killed, even in the uh, eastern, uh, northeast, northwestern South Africa. Yeah, you've you've hit almost all the directions there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's probably all accurate. <laughs> northwest. I mean, I just a couple of weeks ago we were discussing a news report about people being burnt mm. for this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what this is. This is this is a, a white people witch hunt. You know, in, instead of calling it witches, we call them Satanists. It's the same, same thing. Yeah, you're right. Ah, all right. Well, shall we move on to the news? All right. So we've got a, uh, quite a few news uh, stories for you this week, and our first one is about the Nobel Prizes, which you may have, may have heard a little bit about. So, so we don't care about most of the Nobel Prizes. We only care about the ones for physics, chemistry, and medicine. The others are lame. Um, so uh, yeah, what world peace is blah. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the, the European Union one. I don't even know what that means. Oh look, look, it's a science podcast. We don't have to. Yeah, exactly. We don't, that's true. We don't have to care about that. Yeah. Okay, so so the physics one. Let's do that. Let's do that first. So it was won by Serge Haroche and David J. Wineland for groundbreaking experimental methods that enable measuring and manipulation of individual quantum systems. Brilliant! Yeah, sounds wow. awesome. Yeah. Did Deepak have uh, have some <laughs> consulting input into that? Deepak wasn't mentioned. Oh, okay. <laughs> funny that. Funny that. So, so the first question uh, people always ask me about this is, what does that mean? Why do I care? So, so uh, both of these guys uh, independently devised ways for capturing quantum particles for observation while minimizing the possibility for interfering with them. So, so this is an issue with when you're dealing with with quantum mechanics is that. Uh, quantum particles exist in a, a superposition of states. They 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 kind of in a probabilistic state of 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 being in multiple different states at once. And when you interact with them by observing them, you collapse that waveform function and you you force them to take one state instead of all of the others that it could have been in. Um, but what these guys have done is is they've figured out how to to capture particles. In in, uh, in Hiroshi's case, I think it was uh, ionized atoms, and in Wineland, it was um, uh, photons. That they figured out how to capture them, in, in, and so that they stay in a, at least a partial superposition. So they could still be in a number of different quantum states, and then observe them in that superposed state, um, which is wow. kind of important. Yeah, yeah, very. So, so when it comes to things like quantum so they know where Schrodinger's cat is. Yes, yeah. Well, they, they know that 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 Schrodinger's cat is is either dead or alive. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you drop an anvil on the cat. Um, yeah, well, that's that, that. You see, that's what everybody else has to do. Now these guys made it, so you don't have to do that. Um, so, so this is relevant for quantum computing. That's probably the most uh, most immediate and important uh, thing. And when you're dealing with superconductors and that kind of thing, this is also relevant. Um, so hopefully, we'll start seeing on our our store shelves in the next couple of years the uh, the physical technology that uh, is a result of these techni these uh, techniques that they've developed. Pre pre can pre can superpositions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, oh, like spray-on, spray-on superpositions. <laughs> That's awesome. So the, the chemistry prize went to uh, Robert J. Lefkowitz and Brian K. Kobelka for studies of G-protein-coupled receptors, which, of course, everybody knows what that is. That's obvious. Ooh, yeah. yeah G-protein-coupled receptors. For, for those who don't know what those are, G-protein-coupled <laughs> uh, receptors are um, they're basically chemical docking stations on the walls of every cell that allow the cell to to observe and uh, and I suppose it is observe, detect what's going on in the world around it by uh, by binding with um, certain other chemicals that are in the environment, and, and these are involved in a number of different systems. I mean, human sensory systems like sight and uh, hearing, 
depend on these G protein coupled receptors. Uh, and it's actually been it's it's been determined after the this discovery that as many as half of all the the medicines in the world work through these G protein coupled receptor. Uh, mechanisms although a lot of them were developed before that the mechanism was discovered that they were kind of they, 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 they were aware yeah yeah they, they they knew empirically that these things worked but didn't really know how they worked and it was thanks to these guys that they were able to figure out how they worked and that has of course has opened doors to discovering even new even more newer medicines yeah so that's awesome and then the the third one for oh, oh that the interesting thing about the chemistry one was this was the first time that two medical doctors were awarded the chemistry prize yeah Mm. As opposed to the medicine prize, so the the physiology or medicine prize went to John B. Sir John B. Gurdon and uh, Shinya Yamanaka for the discovery that mature cells can be reprogram reprogrammed to become pluripotent. So that's stem cells, yeah. right? So so stem cells are vital not only for research purposes but also for their their therapeutic potential. You can imagine being able to grow new organs and new tissue and that kind of thing to to replace the stuff that's been damaged. Um, embryonic stem cells were, were the ones that were originally used and, and they're easier to work with in the lab because it's easier to just tweak their genetic uh, switches to, to make them differentiate into one kind of cell or another. Um, but of course they're, they're kind of controversial because they're made from embryos and uh, especially the American voting public doesn't like that very much. Um, so uh, uh, these guys figured out how to, to get around that by instead of using embryonic stem cells, they were able to take adult differentiated cells, like skin cells, for example, and flick their genetic markers back, turn them back into stem cells so that they could then be differentiated into new things. Oh, that's incredible. Which just kind of gets around the whole embryonic stem cell issue and, and also solves some other problems that, that would have had to have been solved using embryonic stem cells, like uh, like rejection, for example. Mm. If, if you're growing a new heart for somebody from embryonic stem cells, you... you those, those stem cells come from a, a different body, a different person, and you run the risk of rejection like you would with any organ transplant. But if you're growing a new organ for somebody based on their own stem cells from their own body, you don't need to worry about that because it's already their own tissue. So yeah. that, that's pretty cool. Yeah. That, 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 that one's probably my favorite of the three. Yeah, I reckon it's probably that, the most important. I can immediately see the, the, the fantasticness. In it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Organ, organs at the moment are in shortage all over the world, you know, for, for transplants and things. And mm. if we just grow them instantly, or well, not instantly, but um, easily, yeah. then problem solved. Yeah, indeed. You know, it's quite interesting about this for me is how certain um, challenges and problems that we have in society often uh, boost our scientific uh, um, potential. Uh, considering that half of our progress scientifically uh, or technologically has been because of war. Yeah. Because mm. somebody needed to invent a bigger gun or a laser beam or what, whatever it was, which then later after the war became used for medicine or whatever it may have been. And here you have a similar issue. You have the, um, the super dense American population. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the, the stuff that those moons from wherever are made of. <laughs> and, um, and uh, because of the challenge, uh, you know, the Chinese don't have that problem. They're just going for it. They just yeah. take the stem cells and do what they have to do. And are effectively 20 years ahead as a result. But mm. here you've got someone who's, who's, who's needed to, to, to overcome that, that issue and, mm. and, uh, and he's being recognized for it. I yeah. like that. Yeah. And not only overcoming it, but, but solving several other problems while he's doing it yeah. or while they're doing it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. So that's, uh, that's really good for them. And go goes to John Gurdon and Shinya Yamanaka. Indeed. All right. So our next story is about how American how American politicians are dumb. 
No way. No, true story. Did I mean, you say news? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like old? Uh, well, this one is actually a couple of weeks old, but but uh, it's an interesting one. I think it's worth looking at. So, so I mean, it's no surprise that, that American politicians are dumb. Everybody knows that. But the problem is that they get to make important decisions, like who, you know, how much money does NASA get and stuff like that. And, and one particular example that was in the news recently was a, a representative, Paul Brown, who is a medical doctor, medical doctor, MD, who sits on the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee. So an important guy, right? He This is the committee that decides funding for NASA and that kind of thing. How many people sit on this committee? I don't know that exactly. It's a few. Usually these American committees are a dozen, half a dozen people. I'm not sure. Yeah, no, that's, exactly that's small. Somewhere okay. in that, yeah, yeah. So it's not hundreds of people. So, so anyone sitting on that committee has has a, a strong influence. Yeah, yeah, considerable in, in the whole thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, in addition to to those qualifications, he also thinks that evolution is a lie from the pit of hell. Oh yeah, good for him. Yeah. Do you, do you want to do that for for us, Patrick? <laughs> the pit of hell. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's about right. So, so, so he he said this at a at a in a speech at a church banquet. Okay, so it's a church banquet. Fine. Um, oh God! But it was it was put up on uh, on YouTube, and then a couple of days later, it was taken down very quickly. Um, oh, and he, here's some of the stuff that that he said in that speech. Uh, this is kind of a, a a quote cobbled together from other bits and pieces, but I promise that I haven't changed the meaning. All that stuff I was taught about evolution, embryology, Big Bang Theory is lies to try and keep me and all the folks who are taught that from understanding that they need a savior. Awesome. Hmm. Hmm. I just want to read a piece out of the article also from his quote. Hmm. There's a lot of scientific data that I've found out as a scientist that actually shows that this is really a young Earth. Hmm. Oh, he goes on to say, I believe that the Earth is about 9,000 years old. I believe that it was created in six days as we know them. Well, that's different. It's usually only 6,000 years old. Yeah, he's that is, pushed it up another 3,000 yeah. years. So, so yeah, as, as young Earth creationists go, he's perhaps not the worst one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's another one. The Holy Bible teaches us how to run all our public policy and everything in society. And, mm. that, and that's the reason, as your congressman, I hold the Holy Bible as being the major directions to me of how I vote in Washington, D.C., and I'll continue to do that. Yeah, and uh, he, did he give any uh, great insight as to which of these scriptures tell us how to run our governments? Funny he didn't mention that. Yeah, not, yeah. nothing like that. No, just no. just uh, the Ten Commandments, four of which are grovel before God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, that, that's the good stuff yeah. he's talking about. What maybe, a load of maybe, crap. Well, let me just read this here. That's what the Bible says, and that's what I've come to learn. It is the manufacturer's handbook. Mm, mm. <laughs> it, it would have been really useful manufacturing handbook material mm. if it had told us anything about fucking Schrodinger's cat yeah, yeah. or the internet or the <laughs> germ to, theory yeah. of disease. Yeah. Where, where to find Ariel and Umbriel. Yeah. <laughs> life, life on Mars, that would be a good start. Yeah, where, sh where should we look? Where should we look? <laughs> How deep? What are we looking at? Yeah, exactly. Okay, but here's the scariest quote of the lot. But it teaches us how to run all our public policies and everything in society. Mm. Wow. Wow. But, you know, I'd, I'd like to question the uh, the heading of this one. Mm. I'm, I'm not sure that he's dumb exactly because he's an MD. Clearly, yeah. to, to become a medical doctor takes a, a fairly good brain. That's true. I think that much more likely is that he is being manipulative. I think mm. he, perhaps he does hold some Christian views. Perhaps he's fairly Christian, 
Uh, I think a lot of the stuff he's saying, though, to get votes. Probably. I think that's much more likely. Um, I don't know that for a fact, though. It's mm. really hard to, to know for, 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 for sure. Yeah. What someone really, really deep down believes and what mm. they're just saying in public, especially with politicians, which is yeah, indeed the trap. Okay, I'm just going to quote a bit from the um, journalist here. Although Bronze remarks have raised eyebrows among liberals and scientists, um, as one of the most conservative members of the GOP caucus, some of Brown's strict creationist views aren't that far f- out from the mainstream American public's opinion. Yeah, no, that's that's true. Yeah, that's true. It's a problem. So but, yeah, but yeah. you'd hope they would be. Yeah, exactly. Mm. You know. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one thing for for just a, a random politician to hold those views, but for somebody who's sitting on the science committee, who 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 should you think somebody who sits on the science committee knows better that he's an md no, he's science been, yeah yeah he's been scientifically trained might not be a scientist as such but he's the next best thing but but i suppose it's it's not all that surprising considering that on that same committee sits uh, todd aiken who is the moron who thinks that there is such a thing as a legitimate rape remember that guy yes yeah yes, that's fun him. guy yeah also it's the same team wow that that's got to be a great scientific uh, group to sit yeah. among yeah yeah I mean, that, that just reminds me of the fantastic uh, astronomy lecture I got at the Cradle of Humankind <laughs> a few, couple of months back oh, yeah? from some guy who started fairly well. The mm-hmm. PowerPoint was crap, but uh, and then went on to uh, his theories on the moon landing, oh, no. which were that they weren't. And really? uh, and then on to why we know that God created the universe and, and a whole lot of pictures to prove it. Oh, jeez. Well, pictures you... of supernova. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was hoping for actual uh, photographic evidence of creation. <laughs> yeah, that would have been, <laughs> been fun. Like a bit of the hand of God or something. Yes, yes. God, God, God wearing overalls and paint roller thing. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I thought, shit. Here we are sitting in the cradle of humankind, probably one of the premier scientific destinations in the world. Mm, mm. And they bring Donald Duck onto the stage <laughs> to tell us some scientific fucking thing. Oh God, I was I was I was twitching with annoyance. I, I Heather was like, calm down, Dion, calm down. <laughs> who who was this guy? What, what were his qualifications? Oh, Why man, was he allowed to, to present? Well, no, no, he apparently he does a lot of their lectures. I'd have to get you his name. Uh, wow. He he he's a moon expert apparently, and uh, cool. spends spends his life looking at the moon. The moon expert who denies the moon landing. <laughs> yes, I, I don't. I don't even. <laughs> Did we actually confirm exactly what moon? He well, was? what he was does he is he shows everyone? you photos of the moon mm. with no people on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, that proves it. <laughs> so his scientific evidence was just photos, prettiness. Oh, God, yeah, but uh, all, yeah, all I'm saying is, I, I guess. I guess it it doesn't take uh, soundness hmm. of scientific mind to become a scientist. You know, yeah, I I, I guess you can squeeze in there. Yeah. I suppose the question is, what are they actually teaching you when you learn to become a scientist? Are they teaching you the facts, or are they teaching you how to think? The process, yeah. And it's more the knowledge, the facts. Probably as not the process. Yeah, yeah. No, you're you're right. I I mean, I I can see how. You could get stuck on one minuscule detail, like you you could you could learn how bacterium blah 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 works, mm-hmm. and and spend seven years learning how bacterium blah 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 works, yeah. and and it never has to challenge your religious faith, 
or mm-hmm. your your belief in the supernatural at all. Yeah, yeah. Because you can demonstrate all of this stuff uh, factually and scientifically, and mm. and uh, and it has no real impact on 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 your faith. Although <sighs> young Earth theories, I I don't know how you can escape. Yeah. I don't know how you can get through six seven years of university and 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 not have to deal with the issue of evolution. Yeah. Well. He, some of them even do. I mean, I, I haven't spoken to them directly, but I, I've heard kind of anecdotal reports of people who've had these discussions with people like astronomers and evolutionary biologists who know that the universe is older than 6,000 years. And, and the way they have to do it is they, they kind of, they have their personal beliefs about how old the universe is. And then the, for their day job, when they go to work, they put on a hat that says, okay, for the next eight hours, I'm going to act as if the universe is 13.7 billion years old. Uh, and then when I get go home again, that, then I'm going to go back to my own personal beliefs. Yeah, I, I've I've actually got a, a former student of mine um, has gone off to do something in the life sciences. I'm not sure exactly what. I think uh, environmental studies or something like that. Um, and he's blatantly clear about the fact that he will only discuss evolution and write about evolution and so on in his essays and assignments, so that he gets the marks and he gets his degree. Yeah. He doesn't believe in it. He doesn't care about it. He doesn't. He's he's. Uh, it's incredibly frustrating for me, um, knowing that that I'm partly responsible for putting about there, <laughs> wow. um, in 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 a an incomplete form, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. Well, I, I guess he it's, didn't it's, get science. Oh, that's good at yep. least. Well, I, I guess that's not all that different from what I do, right? So I'm a Star Trek expert. I get up and and I speak authoritatively about the the. The, the the nature of a non-existent world, a fictional universe, and I know quite a lot about this universe. I know how it works. I know the ins and outs, but I know that it's fictional. So, so that that might be like a young Earth, Earth creationist who who knows that evolution and and all of that kind of thing are fictional, knows in inverted commas, um, but they they still they learn about it as if it's a fictional universe. Like they're, like they're a fan of what this universe would look like if it were real. But there's also the story of those um, young earth creationists in America who went to an official university to learn evolution. So they're studying evolution so that they have better counter-arguments against mm. evolution. That, that'll yeah. be a rarer thing. But yeah. And they come, they go in with their belief and they come out with their belief. They, their belief doesn't change with all their, everything they learn. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And yet they still come with irreducible complexity and that kind of nonsense as if that works. <laughs> there are only like three or four um, remotely uh, academic arguments. Yeah. And they're all trashed. Yeah. They've yeah. all been trashed a thousand times. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, irre- it, like yeah. no one's coming up with anything new. Yeah, indeed. I mean, irreducible, irreducible complexity is a pretty good argument. But Darwin dealt, you know, did away with that in the eighteen something, eighteen fifties. Yeah, 1850s, yeah. yeah in yes. the Origin of Species, like it was chapter three or something, mm. that was gone. Okay, so so upfront he took, you know, he got rid of that one, but they still they still bring it out all the time. <sighs> I suppose it comes down to the old saying. I'm not quite sure who's uh, who I'm quoting at the moment, but um, as I said, it's no one that actually believes in evolution. You either understand it. Mm. Or you don't. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone, right? So, so our government are also retarded. And and we pick on, on this show, we pick on our government all the time for being stupid. Except for Naledi Pando. She's all right. But uh, the rest of them are, are idiots. I mean, you know, let's, uh, let's cast our mind back a few years to our, our, uh, our president before the last one and his uh, uh, health minister who were just, who were so st- stupid and so wrong that they were kind of evil to you know, to that yeah, extent, they, they caused you know they caused hundreds of thousands of deaths. Um, 
but you know, point is that it's not just us. You know, this is in the in one of the leading technological con- countries in the world. They have the same the same problems. So it's not just an Africa thing. It's not just a, a South Africa thing. It's it's a human thing, apparently. Why did I come onto this podcast? This is really depressing. <laughs> oh, it's going to get better. Because our next story is about how NASA really is working on a warp drive this time. And this one works on dilithium crystals. Really? No. <laughs> so, so this is a story in Wired, which uh, is usually a pretty good news source, but they somehow managed to get everything wrong in this one. It's, so, it's still a good story, though. I like it. I mean, the, the, the actual story, the real story. Yes, yeah. The, the real story is awesome. So, so, uh, so the way Wired reported it was that there's a team from the University of Huntsville working in collaboration with, with Boeing, NASA, and the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and that they are working on a, in inverted commas, warp drive, and then in more quotes, powered by, and in more quotes, dilithium crystals. <laughs> <laughs> and in more quotes, just like in Star Trek. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but, but, so they, they didn't need the quotes in the last one. <laughs> <laughs> Not even no, they needed the quotes in the last one because they even got that wrong. <laughs> right, so, so um, uh, all right. So uh, our listeners may remember that in our last episode we talked about uh, people from the same university. Actually, it was also University of Huntsville who were working on on a theoretical warp drive, and that is not what's happening here. So, so the team from Huntsville University are working on an engine that's designed for spacecraft, designed to be much, much, much faster than the current generation of propulsion systems employed by NASA. So th- this is now intended to be a potential successor to the ion drive, which is the NASA's deep space uh, standard at the moment. Really, really fast. That they reckon that this engine would probably accelerate a craft up to in the neighborhood of 100,000 kilometers per hour, which is flipping fast. Ridiculously fast. It's, it's, it's kind of the, the same speed that the Earth orbits around the sun. It's, it's kind of that fast. Hmm. And uh, this engine is called the Charger 1 Pulsed Power Generator. And it's basically a fusion rocket engine, which is awesome. <laughs> so, so it uses a solid fuel bed of deuterium and lithium-6 fused into a crystalline matrix bathed in lithium plasma, which ignites fusion and then vents the exhaust plasma through a man- magnetic nozzle in order to generate thrust. I mean, oh, that is awesome. All of those words yeah. are awesome. <laughs> it sounds like we're back at Star Trek again. <laughs> I know, right? I, I mean, that's that's the reality of it, and it just sounds so cool, just in, in with the real description. Um, so, so now the, the 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 team have affectionately uh, taken to affectionately referring to their deuterium lithium six crystalline fuel as dilithium crystals because it has the word lithium mm. in there, because they're scientists and geeks, and you know, who wouldn't? Okay, but now here, now let's look at what uh, Wired got wrong in this article. Firstly, it's not a warp drive. Right? A warp drive is a, uh, an engine that travels faster than the speed of light by bending space-time around the ship. It warps the space-time, in fact. Yes. Exactly. Now, although 100,000 kilometers per hour is flipping fast, it's nowhere near the speed that, that a warp drive would be capable of. It's just conventional thrust. There's no warping of space. It's just ordinary classical physics at work. Awesome classical physics, mm. but classical physics. Okay, so the second one is, although the team affectionately referred to their fuel source as dilithium crystals, they aren't. Okay, that's just a nickname. Dilithium is not a version of lithium. Um, It's a fictional element with an atomic weight of 87 that comes from a whole separate periodic table that was invented for Star Trek. Uh, It's unknown to modern science. There is no dilithium uh, known to modern science. And the third thing is that warp drives in Star Trek are not powered by dilithium crystals. They're powered by... 
deuterium and anti-deuterium. Exactly. So now deuterium, they use deuterium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, that, that, was, that was the closer thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And why didn't even pick that up? They didn't even say that here's the deuterium. So now, okay, dilithium crystals are used in the engine. So so the, the, the way that Federation warp drives are powered are through a matter-antimatter annihilation reactor that combines liquid deuterium with anti-deuterium and that creates an, a, a, an annihilation reaction. And the, exactly. And that the resulting explosion in plasma is focused into a particle stream by passing it through a, a dilithium crystal. Okay, so the, the crystal is a lens. It's like a, a catalyst, if that. All right? It's not the power source. It's so just, this is all fictional. Yes. Yeah. 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 See here we here we go. This is this is what I was talking about earlier. <laughs> is uh, knowing everything you used to know about a fictional universe without actually believing that it's true. So so now if if Wyatt had described the engine as an impulse drive from Star Trek, they'd, they'd still be wrong, but they'd be a lot closer than than a warp drive. And in fact, you know, pulse is even in the name. What, what was that name again? The 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 Charger One pulsed power generator. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. That'd be really it's, cool. It's basically impulse. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so that that upset me because they just got it wrong. But Everything. it's it's still a, a really cool design, and, and yes. uh, you, you can't really appreciate it properly until you see the diagrams. But the things they're doing to contain the thrust is fantastic. It's awesome. Yeah, I mean, would would bizarre. that thrust um, be in place from the surface of the Earth, or do they only kick those thrusters in once it's in space? Actually, they're, they're talking about building this thing in orbit. So uh, ah. they they wouldn't even be be launching it from the ground. Okay, they so just float it out and start. Well, you, you'd, you'd yeah. have a conventional rocket to to get it off yeah. the ground. Yeah, yeah well, to, to get the pieces up. And yeah, yeah, the pieces. Up. Yeah, then you assemble those in space like the like they did with the ISS, and then that just heads off with a, a nice slow acceleration at first, and then gradually speeding up and, and getting faster and faster. Well, presumably constant acceleration. No, yes, no, it yeah. wouldn't be constant acceleration because. Yeah. You'd be losing mass. Ignore me. I'm talking crap. <laughs> yeah, so it's not quite as, as efficient as the ion drive, as I understand it, but um, it's much your, your, your delta V is much bigger. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah it's much greater thrust. So that's awesome. All this uh, scientific talk is making me very hungry. <laughs> oh well, that, well, that's good. Can we have a bry or food or something? <laughs> oh no! Brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> Best we've ever had. <laughs> that reminds me of an interesting story. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there was a story on News Twenty Four. Uh, it was a few weeks ago now. The, the story was was sent to us by uh, Andre Engelbrecht, and uh, the headline of the story was "Could Bry's Cause Cancer?" So, to, uh, to our, our overseas listeners, a bry is what we call a barbecue, where we all stand around outside and put meat on, over an open fire and grill it and eat it. So, so um, the problem is that the headline there is. Uh, demonstrates journalistic incompetence because uh, you know when you've had the, uh, when the, the the headline is a question and there's a potential one word answer the answer can always be no and then you don't have to read it anymore right so but that aside uh, the article turned out to be better than I was expecting I was expecting it to be lame and stupid but it really wasn't that bad and it was written by a guest writer to news 24 dr. IV van Heerden and that's IV as in the letters not IV <laughs> um, uh, so Dr. Van Heerden's analysis is that despite warnings by the World Cancer Research Fund that the consumption of red meat is a major contributing factor towards development of certain cancers, the best evidence at the moment suggests that this isn't the case. Um, th there was a, a really good study uh, and was cited in the article um, uh, suggesting that there really isn't any solid evidence suggesting that, that uh, red meat itself is a potential problem. Sorry, can I interrupt with a question there? Sure. Why did the World Cancer Research Fund say otherwise? Then? That's a very good question, and and they've they've 
they said it twice in 1997 and then again more recently. I forget the year. Uh, no, 2007. I see as another uh, report. Okay. Yeah, you know, they, they they upgraded their threat level, but mm. uh, a, a more recent study that that did a kind of a, a, a literature-wide analysis, I suppose a, ne- a meta-analysis, meta-analysis. Um, of all the literature available, suggests that, that there really isn't strong evidence to suggest that, that red meat is the issue. However, that doesn't mean the bries are not an issue because there's another factor to having a bry. It's not just the meat that's on the bry. It's also there's the fire part, and um, cooking meat over an open fire is potentially an issue because it infuses the meat with trace amounts of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, or PHCs. But that's what makes it taste so good. Well, that's true. That's mm. true. Yeah. But it's also the, uh, the, the bad thing, because PHCs are a problem. Some are harmless, like that, that just go straight through you, but others are highly toxic. It's, it's the, the PHCs in cigarette smoke that are the, the major carcinogen. Mm. And, and when you're, you're cooking meat over a fire, there, there are a number of, of uh, factors that determine exactly what kind of PHEs are being generated by that fire and therefore ending up in your meat. Things like uh, exactly what tree uh, the wood that you're burning came are, from. Are, are you burning tobacco plants? <laughs> yeah, that's one That's <laughs> one as well. Uh, even if you're using a gas fire, it can depend on how that gas was treated and, and how hot it's burning and that kind of thing as to what, P, what PHEs are, are being uh, produced and then put into your meat. Um, so although there's a good chance that you're just getting the harmless ones, there's also a good chance that you're, you're getting the dodgy ones. Fortunately, it is just trace amounts, so it's it's not going to kill you as long as you don't buy too often. You know, if, you, if you're buying every week, that's probably something you want to rethink. Having it once or twice a month is probably okay. Well, I'm just reading here in the article. I'm seeing here words, it can possibly, yeah, and yeah, monetary, yeah. and may possible, and that's battling true. to test it. Well, we're, we're talking probabilities. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. possibilities, which is, which is the... Correct. Yeah, exactly. The issue. Yeah, that there's uh, because there's such a high variability of factors, and there's there's no way of predicting with any degree of certainty which PACs are being produced and in what concentrations. So it's probably a good idea just to be on the safe side of the probabilities and just throttle back on your brining if you if you're doing it often. You do know you live in South Africa. I do know that, and and you know what, I live in South Africa, and I'm a fan of brining, but even I don't do it that often. I mean, I maybe have a brine once, maybe twice a month. Yeah. I find it interesting that we're discussing a possible good reason to not bry as frequently as as we ought to being <laughs> that there are possibly carcinogenics there that might kill us over time when mm. in fact there are such bigger questions like the fact that uh, we are genetically related to the fucking creatures that we're eating <laughs> and that maybe there's a problem with that and yes, that maybe yeah. we should all be vegetarians for for much bigger reasons <laughs> than uh, because we might maybe one day get sick from it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. <laughs> and of course, there's also more proven tests of like um, uh, cholesterol and high mm-hmm. blood pressure and all that. So we've got the moral grounds, we've got the current uh, uh, scientific tests. Mm-hmm. Why are we even discussing uh, cancer as well? Uh, because it's it's one more factor, and mm-hmm. you have to consider all. Well, if you're a doctor. Um, you have to consider all the factors. Mm-hmm. If somebody comes to you with uh, um, problems or, or, or uh, seems to be at risk of having problems, mm. it's worth knowing what things may tip them over into um, something serious like cancer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if they are brying every single week, then yeah, it's a fairly obvious, um, you know, no, no, suggestion the, that the, they might want to calm down yeah. more. There's a red flag if, you, yeah. if you're red flag. Yeah. When, if so you're it's not the smoking. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's possible that they have multiple red flags. <laughs> they, 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 there are some people who are red flag factories. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are Chinese. Yeah, ignore me. Carry on. <laughs> 
Uh, I also imagine that if you're standing next to the bry while while the beet is cooking, you're probably getting a much higher dose of those PFCs. Getting in smoke, yeah, yeah. directly. Mm. So you, you might want to stand clear of that as well if you want. Yeah, that, that that's one of my personal problems with bry's is mm. is uh, just I don't like standing outside with smoke blowing in my face for hours on end mm. when I could put something in a microwave for two minutes. <laughs> but anyway, that, that I tend so to step safer. aside and enjoy my cigar somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like to let the Af- Afrikaans people handle the actual brying. Because they're better at it. It's like something genetic. Genetic, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Think Michael's not here. <laughs> okay. Mind you, where was he last Saturday? He outside. was brying. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was brying. That's true. We, we were at the Meetings house, and uh, Michael was the one who was outside doing the brying while the rest of us <laughs> were inside having a chat. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. All right. Well, uh, Chris, have you got a story for us? About, I have a uh, lovely story for you, but it's a sad one. Oh, dear. Um... And as it happens, it uh, involves meta-analyses again. Oh, uh, awesome. So, so two meta-analysis stories in a row. I never meta-analysis I didn't like. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Lol. <laughs> um, so, uh, apparently there is proof that our bodies can predict the future with data input that doesn't exist yet. Awesome. Pe- uh, possibly, perhaps, maybe. That's brilliant. But, but probably not. Oh. Um, I would like to start with an ad hominem uh, against the, the authors of this uh, um, uh, published journal article on um, um, uh, a free open source journal thing. Nice. Um, the lead author in particular is an unapologetic uh, spiritualist. Oh, dear. Uh, and the other two authors, just judging by their publishing histories, mm, seem to kind of lean in that direction as well, but I'm, I'm mm. less sure about them. Oh, the lead author, Mossbridge, I, I went and read uh, Mossbridge's uh, personal um, blog, mm. and it's blatant. Um mm. Uh, there's a bit of cogni- uh, cognitive dissonance going on there, I think, mm-hmm. where, where she, she wants to be science. I, I don't doubt that her, her heart's in the right place. She, she um, understands the value of science and what yeah. the scientific method's supposed to be all about, mm. but is also very deeply into her, her spiritual stuff. When uh, you talk about spiritual stuff, what do you actually mean? Well, in her case, she appears to be Jewish. Um, but also has some kind of new agey uh, self-help kind of guru, um, secrety things maybe something along those lines. It's, it's so it's more religion type based as opposed to some weird medical type belief or homeopathy or it's it's it's, or it's it's magic is magic. basically what she's she's after here. Mm. Um, but, does she call herself a spiritualist? Doesn't use the word spiritualist. No, no. Um, but you know, new agey kind of stuff. That that direction of general category of things and because of of that it seems she's um started with her her conclusion and Mm. tried to aim for that Mm. and i think that's where the study's gone horribly horribly wrong um basically what it claims is that there um is statistical evidence from a meta-analysis of um earlier studies uh not a lot of them though but we'll, we'll discuss all the flaws in a second um, they're, they're claiming that there's evidence that our bodies um, can react to future stimuli, uh, stimuli um, obviously before that stimuli has happened to them. So, so we're talking about violating causality here. Exactly. This is similar to, who was the guy earlier this year? Um, the Americans were all over him. Oh, that guy. Uh, Something with the B. I should have written his name down. Yeah. Mm. Um, Similar sort of a story. He had, um, I think he was doing some sort of psychic prediction kind of tests mm-hmm. or mind reading tests and yeah. then trying to re- read the results in reverse or something like that. Right. I really should have written that down here properly. I think we covered it on the show briefly. Yeah. I, I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, their research was, was uh, looking at um, something similar to that. Basically saying, 
if you give somebody a stimulus, has their body previously, prior to that, already reacted to it? Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of flaws with their um, uh, their method for the meta-analysis. Uh, I think the first big one is their um, the fact that it is a meta-analysis. Yeah, um, yeah. If you're taking a bunch of small, relatively inconclusive on their own um, um, studies, uh, which the authors here admit uh, were, for the most part, still initial poorly planned sort of exploratory mm -hmm. things going mm -hmm. into a, a relatively new direction of research um, and you're trying to draw some sort of grand conclusion out of all of those yeah. it's likely to go wrong yeah uh, adding twist, uh, poor quality studies together doesn't give you a good quality study. exactly yeah. yeah i suppose it comes down from a problem of getting a whole bunch of interesting answers when the questions aren't about the subject in the first place mm. yeah something like that yeah, yeah. Um, Patrick, is your face hurting yet? Because I'm about to slap it. I was just test driving. Yeah. Theory here. Uh, Sorry. I'm getting it. I'm getting it. You realize you actually have to slap him now for that <laughs> to have occurred because he can't possibly predict something that won't happen. Um, but yeah, a, a meta-analysis will work if you've got a large body of, of previous um, um, studies to, to work with, which are all kind of agreed on, on the methods to be used, and they're all looking at basically the same thing. Um, and you're not just cobbling together, well, this one's talking about something, that one's talking about something, and you know, they're vaguely in the right direction, so we'll, we'll stick them together. Um, there are right and wrong ways to do meta-analyses, and I, I just mm. don't think this field is, is currently large enough to, to do one effectively. Mm. Uh, the the Cochrane reviews, mm. um, their, their, their medical studies, are really good meta-analyses, yeah. but those rely on a vast body of um, research material to, to get anything done. Yeah. And high-quality research. High, high quality to begin yeah. with, uh, which is another thing that's a little dubious with this one. Yeah. Uh, we could kind of talk, stop talking about this um, research there, but there's a, a, other problems as well. Oh, dear. Um, their search strategy for finding the um, uh, research papers they wanted to include in their meta-analysis, mm. it's dodgy. They went specifically looking for things on the topic of uh, presentiment, uh. Which, which is what they call this, you know, detecting things before they've happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they, they gave a list of all the search terms that they used, and they're all pretty much in the same direction. Mm -hmm. So you're going to get a bunch of research by people who already expect this thing to occur. Um, a, a healthier approach, I think, would have been to look for studies, and this would have been harder to do, but it would have been more reliable, more accurate. Hmm. Find studies that aren't specifically looking for the answer that you are looking for, but which happen to use a method which you could use to get the same results. Hmm. So that the, the researchers you know from the start aren't already biased in the same direction as you. Yeah. Um, you, you otherwise end up with a lot of confirmation bias uh, from, from the what they call the desk drawer effect, where any any negative uh, results um, mm. just don't really get published. Yeah. Um, and I think there's quite a high chance of this here. Mm. They they did include in their statistical commentary for this paper um, uh, their method for trying to get around the desk drawer effect. Mm. They, they they reckon that they got around it, and you'd need way more papers than they had to to try to contradict what they said. Mm. But I, I don't think that's a real substitute for um, good data from, mm. from actual uh, studies. Yeah. Uh, I think they used 26 um, studies in, in total here, which isn't a very large number. No. Uh, the third thing that I have a problem with is that um, all the confounding factors um, that they, they suggested might have uh, thrown their meta-analysis off, they ruled out uh, as statistically insignificant, mm. therefore saying our, our study makes sense, but they did it one by one. 
Mm. And there's, of course, the question, what happens if two of those confining factors or three or all of them together um, were within statistically probable um, likelihood um, to a large enough degree that it throws off the whole meta-analysis. Yeah. And this is something that um, Steve Novella on the Skeptics Guide to the Universe has talked about a lot over the last year or so. Yeah. Uh, the idea of uh, researcher degrees of freedom. Mm. The idea that if a, a researcher is allowed to adjust this um, variable or, or this this uh, part of the, the, the research uh, within a certain degree, a mm. certain range of uh, movement, um, you can get that to a reasonable point. Sorry, if, if you do that multiple times for multiple different parts of the study, each of those things individually can be reasonable. Mm -hmm. But in total, they can all kind of skew the study off to um, a wrong direction, into a, a misleading direction. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's probably what's going on here with this study is that they've, they've left themselves too much uh, research and degree of freedom. Mm. Uh, but, um, mm -hmm. Sorry, just to come back on that. Uh, but, but what it sounds like you're telling me is that they actually changed the results individually on each of the tests and they, still they, met what they wanted. They wouldn't have changed the results. What they would well, this the the the, the what should I say the volume. They turned up the volume on some results and turned down sure, the sure, volume sure. on some results. Ba per basically, deciding test. is is this you know uh, uh, study number one is eighty percent reliable. Cool, we'll go with that. Ignoring the twenty percent, the second one. 80% mm. reliable, 80% reliable. The, all those 20% unreliabilities start adding up. Um, and if you have enough of that, it spoils the whole meta-analysis. Mm. Um, then I have a fourth thing. Jeez. Mm. <laughs> I went through this as thoroughly as I could. Yes, see. Um, they had a very small analysis team. Um, three, three authors in total. Mm. Um, a lot of it, there was basically just two people at a time working on the study, mm -hmm. which meant that... Um, Quite early on, they'd all gone through all the research already, so mm. th there was no no blinding of the the, the mm. data. Mm. Um, it was it was an initial step where they kept things blinded, and then beyond that, everybody already knows everything. Wow. Okay. So I think their research blinding was no good. Mm. Mm. Um, their final effect size was also really really small, which is not not impossible. It doesn't automatically rule it out, but it does make it much easier to explain, along with all the other flaws that I'm suggesting, mm. um, why they might have gotten any effect size at all. You know, a small effect size. I mean, if it was a huge effect size, then maybe all those small little research degrees of freedom uh, wouldn't you know add up to enough to explain. But a really small effect, you can explain that reasonably well with um, a, a, a small effect size. Mm. Um, I think a, a I forget the percentage of it. It was quite small. Um, but, of course, the, the you, you mentioned slapping Patrick in the face, um, as we were all thinking. Um, <laughs> but um, the, 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 the actual effect that they were looking for in the study uh, was uh, not for knowledge of future events. It mm -hmm. was not lightning reflexes from some sort of spidey senses. No Jedi reflexes. No Jedi um, uh, pre precognition. Not the ability to hit the Bosky in time, which is what uh, Mossbridge had uh, well, was was quoted as saying in the the mm. uh, original um, article that I found this in. Hit the Bosky in time. Yeah, 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 that's exactly what she was talking about. You're you're, you're doing something wrong mm. at work. You want to you want to you know alt tab or whatever to mm. you know the, the the work you're supposed to be doing. Will her study reveal that you have the ability to do this, even if you didn't physically see the boss or you know hear the boss or anything like that? Now I'm now I'm a lot more interested in this research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that, that that's not even what the meta analysis yeah. was looking for. She right. she talked about that, but it's not what she was talking about. Oh, okay. What the meta analysis was actually looking for was changes in skin conductivity. So the ability to violate causality basically manifests itself in subtly sweatier skin. Wow. 
That's it's it's a tiny effect size, and they're calling this a, a success. So I'm I'm really not at all impressed by this. No, no, changes in skin conductivity is a highly variable thing anyway. Mm. I mean, ask anybody who's ever worked a wheat gate bridge or what do they call it a a lie detector well, or wheat, wheat stone bridge. Wheat stone bridge, yeah. I mean, yes, uh, or, or like an, an e meter. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah, it, it it's up and down all the time. And, yeah. and just the, the slightest bit of stress or whatever can alter that. Sure. And and they're they're claiming all the studies in their meta analysis accounted for that, but as I'm suggesting, researcher degrees of freedom mm. probably throws it off on its own, even yeah. even before you start looking at all the other um, dubious things about this. Jeez. Yeah. So uh, that was an awful study. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of a mess, but interesting yeah. to discuss, just in terms of what can go wrong with the. Yeah. Um, Research. Yeah, indeed. In this case, just about everything. Well, maybe they were right, you know, because after hearing uh, Dion's um, <laughs> threat there was a slap, I'm kind of sweating over here. So, <laughs> who knows? Is your, your, your cheek starting to glow red? She's growing weird, a little bit of perspiration on the forehead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, well from, from one sad story to another sad story, and... and um, this, this came in today that um, Paul Kurtz has passed away. Um, Paul Kurtz may be well known to our listeners as uh, as the father of secular humanism. He was also the uh, the, the founder of, of the rationalist public publishing house Prometheus Books, mm-hmm. as well as one of the founding members of the, the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, CSI, formerly known as uh, PSYCOP. I, I'm not even going to pretend to remember what that, that long acronym stands for. Uh, he also wrote a bajillion articles and books, and and was generally an awesome guy. And uh, you know, he was kind of one one of the founding members of of the modern skeptical movement. Him, along with James Randi and a couple of other guys, he was he was that guy. Um, and he'll be missed. Yeah, I I can't say I really knew much about him before, um, but uh, I did read a, a really good quote of his uh, the other day, and uh, I wish I'd included it in uh, here now to um to to say now. Mm-hmm. But uh, maybe maybe we can throw it into the show notes. Or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds um, good. There was some, um, uh, thinking back now, he, he being involved with CSI, he did a number of interviews on CSI's podcast, Point of Inquiry, back when DJ Growth, he was running it. And um, they were always good. They were some of my favorite episodes of, of uh, Point of Inquiry. So I'll, I'll link to one or two of those if you want to go back and, and listen to what uh, Paul Kurtz had to say. So yeah, so that was sad. So uh, yeah. on that sad note, that's all of our news for this week. Shall we move on to our sci-fi fantasy quote for the week? Why not? Owen, do you have a quote for us? I do have a quote. I do have a quote. And that uh, this week's quote comes from Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, everybody's favorite Star Trek movie. It's said by Captain James T. Kirk, and it goes like this. Damned Bones, you're a doctor. You know that pain and guilt can't be taken away with the wave of a magic wand. Nice. And did he finish his sentence? No, that's the end of the sentence. Uh, uh. Actually, no, I think there was a bit more than that. <laughs> but yeah. Are you quoting out of context? Yes. <laughs> uh. Okay, we've got some announcements this week. We've got quite a few. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in, uh, in Joburg, we've got several. Uh, our first one is uh, Thursday, the 25th of October, if you're listening to this podcast on the uh, the release date. Then it's tonight, so hurry. And that is Rumble in the Pub, happening at Premi PRT and Rosebank at 6.30. So uh, get going. Next one is next Wednesday, the 7th of November at 7 o'clock. And that is Skeptics in the Pub. So that's Wednesday, 7th of November at 7 o'clock at the Brazen Head Pump in Santon. 
and and that to be clear is the now general Johannesburg one. Yeah, right? yeah, that's the central Joburg one. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. because of course now starting this month we have three separate skeptics in the pubs for the the Greater Joburg area. That the central one is that one. We then have the the East Rand one, which is happening on Tuesday the thirteenth of November at seven. That's at the Grand Slam Sports Diner in Edenvale. Notice that's a Tuesday, not a Wednesday. Unless of course there's a rugby game or something going on. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, yeah. But better keep your eye on the the Google Plus event because it's not unheard of that we've had to change the venue on that one at the last minute. So so uh, just go to the Google Plus event. It's linked in the show notes. Add yourself there and watch for updates. And then um, a couple of weeks later, we have the West Rand one, and that's also Skeptics in the Pub on Wednesday, the 21st of November at 7, and that's going to be at the Green and Gold Pub in Rudderport, which our Skeptics members will be familiar with. That that same week, a couple of days earlier, uh, is Skeptics in the Park, and that's on Sunday, the 18th of November at 1 o'clock at the Joburg Botanical Garden in Emerentia. Brilliant. Yeah, so yeah. lots of good stuff coming up, and hope to see you guys at some of those things. Yeah, some good news to end the show with. Yes, indeed. All right, so now we move on to our links of the week. Patrick, have you got a link for us? Oh, yes, I have. <laughs> Playboy. Nice. <laughs> win. I think you win the links. Oh, yes. Oh, is there more? Okay, carry on. <laughs> okay. Um, I like to read Playboy. I like to read the article. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Sure, me you too. sure you do, Patrick. I read them uh-huh. intently. <laughs> no, I do too, actually. <laughs> They're really good stuff. Okay, why am I talking about reading the articles and not looking at those beautiful, beautiful women? Well, in this last month's uh, uh, magazine, we had a couple of interviews, one with Richard Dawkins, Mm -hmm. uh, and not just a quick one-page filler or between the two pretty pictures. This was a six-page interview with Richard Dawkins. Wow, really good interview. That's one I must definitely go look at. Mm. It's beautiful. It goes on for pages here, even on the webpage. Um, So you've got the whole article here. For free on the webpage. Mm, mm. Is he naked? <laughs> Good news. No. Oh, he's not. Nobody else is either. I'm not seeing any naked women on this page. Huh. Oh, well. <laughs> we'll just have to read the article, I guess. <laughs> no, no, it's an excellent interview. I, I really enjoyed it. In, in that same issue, if you manage to pick up the uh, either the paper edition or, or the, the PDF edition, um, the, the next interview in that edition is uh, is of um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and it's an interview conducted by Carl Zimmer, our our friend Carl Zimmer, who was on the show a few episodes back. Uh, also, really, really good. Also, quite a long interview. I think it was four or five pages long. Really, really good stuff. Sounds like an unusually good uh, issue. Indeed, indeed. Well, none of the articles were quickies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. And I noticed that uh, this month I got another very good, uh, very interesting uh, interview. If I can find the page to read it back to you. But also um, well worth going through and reading it. I think you've got stuck on page four there. Move on. <laughs> move on. <laughs> <laughs> the interview pages seldom fold out like that. <laughs> How you managed to get a fold out of the PDF is uh, quite impressive. But <laughs> well, it's just a little bit sticky. Let me just get it open. Oh, All right. No. Apple can do that. <laughs> Okay, uh, moving on, moving on. All right. Dion, have you got a link for us? I do. My link is www.beliefnet.com slash entertainment slash quizzes slash beliefomatic (laughs) dot ASPX. Awesome. uh, The easier way to do it is just Google beliefomatic and uh, and you'll go straight to the page. And, And what the beliefomatic is, I just absolutely love it. I've been using it for many years. I speak to many people 
uh, who I ask, well, you know, what do you believe? What what do you what is what is your system of belief? And they'll say, uh, I don't really like to be labeled. I kind of a bit of this, and I say. I promise you there's a label for you. What, whatever the hell you think you are, there's a label for you because whatever it is you believe, when you put all those beliefs into one bucket, there is a, there is a uh, collective noun for who you are. Hmm. And, and, uh, and if you want to know what that collective noun is for who you are, um, go to Belief-O-Matic. You answer about 25 questions. Uh, you weigh your questions from how vehemently you actually uh, believe the, the answer that you've given. And then it comes back to you with uh, w what the closest match for your belief is to one of the official collective terms for, for that faith. Awesome. And uh, so um, we have uh, no names mentioned uh, on this <laughs> very panel, a universalist and yeah. a uh, sec secular humanist. I, I dispute the secular humanist label. <laughs> I don't understand how you could be a misanthrope and a secular humanist. <laughs> yeah, give it a bash. It's uh, it's it's a lot of fun, and uh, certainly, I, although I didn't see it tonight on on your guys' tablets, but usually what it does is it gives you the whole list mm. and how how accurately you match the entire list from from uh, okay. the highest match to the lowest match. So, mm. so so if you fit into two different categories reasonably well, then they'll both have high okay. percentages. Right. Yeah, that's pretty good. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, oh, fun and games. All right, Chris, do you have a link for us? I have a lovely link for you. Uh, this last uh, Sunday at um, Skeptics in the Park, um, I happened to mention to people uh, an interesting story I'd read. Well, not a story, a non-fiction thing I'd read. Uh, about a, a guy um, who fell through a, a thunderstorm. Um, and uh, I went looking for that to find more details, and I got... Uh, it's hard to find a lot of details on the internet. His, his Wikipedia mm. page is shamefully short. Mm -hmm. um, I found one video on YouTube which cobbles together some stock footage and stuff and just tells the story of what happened to him. Um, but ideally what you want to actually do is just go out and read the guy's book, because he wrote a book. Uh, his name is William Rankin. And the book is The Man Who Rode the Thunder. And it's really a brilliant story. A, a fighter pilot in the US in the, I think it was the early 1960s, um, who had a aircraft failure, mechanical failure in um, midair, really high up. I think it was 48,000 feet or something like that. Um, and had no choice but to eject out of his uh, plane uh, above a cumulonimbus cloud, um, big giant um, storm cloud. And he fell through the thing, and as soon as he you know, got out of the cockpit, his uh, uh, um, eyes and ears and things started bleeding because of the pressure difference. Um, the updrafts in the storm kept him up in the air for 40 minutes in total. Um, and he was just battered and, you know, lightning going off right next to his face and Jeez. things like that. Ridiculously, incredibly horrifying story. Um, but ideally what you want to do is read his own version account, uh, his, his, mm. his account of it. Um, I've, I've read the abridged version um, uh, of uh, what he's got in his book, um, and it's about twenty pages long of just him first, you know, first-hand account of bad shit happening to him in midair. Jeez, um, hectic, and he yeah. survived. Obviously, and he survived. Yeah, 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 that's incredible. Um, so yeah, that that was an interesting one, and uh, hopefully uh, someone else will enjoy the full story. That, that reminds me of the three guys in the movie Chronicle who, oh, yeah. who I haven't seen it. Learn how to fly yeah. effectively and. And 
have to deal with a plane in, in, <laughs> in the air and lightning yeah. and various other things. Yeah, sounds awesome. fantastic. Sounds <laughs> like a great story. Awesome. Owen, mm. <laughs> do you have a link for us today? I, I do have a link, funnily enough. Thanks for asking. Um, my, my link was, was actually sent to me by uh, New Lundy van Roy and our, our faithful listener. And it's a short story that was published in the journal Nature. And it's called If Only by Tony Ballantyne. And it's awesome. It's really cool. It's it's a little story, not very long, um, about um, it's about a, a woman who takes her child to the doctor, and the doctor recommends a, a vaccination, and the mother is resistant to the idea of having the child vaccinated. And uh, what happens from there? I won't spoil the ending for you, but it's uh, it's a lot of fun and uh, worth sharing with your friends. So uh, go along and take a read of that. Yeah, awesome, excellent. Well, I think that's all we have. Patrick, where can people find you on the internet? I can be found on all the good social media sites with the username, the Mist1971. All, all the good ones. So all the good ones. So that's Google Plus then. Google Plus, Twitter, Facebook, oh, so YouTube, the, so, so, <laughs> LinkedIn. So, so the good ones and then some others as well. <laughs> well I said all. <laughs> Playboy. <laughs> Not yet. I haven't found where I can submit my information. <laughs> Anyway, the username is uh, the mist T H E M Y S T one nine seven one. Awesome, and of course we'll, we'll link to your your Google Plus profile in the show notes. And uh, Dion, where can people find you on the internet? Easiest place is dionbarnard.net. That's my personal blog, or you can find me on primordial-soup.org, our podcast. Awesome. Excellent. And uh, Chris, where can people find you on the internet? Fjordsofafrica.blogspot.com. Excellent. Uh, I see you've been blogging fairly often there. Uh, yeah, Fjords recently. of Africa? Yeah. Indeed, yes. Wow, you're going to have to give us that history. Uh, if, if you don't get it immediately, then you won't get it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a Douglas Adams reference. Oh, uh, okay. Guy. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, sorry. What is that guy's name again? Uh, I just love that name. All right, and, and of course you can find all of my stuff at owenswart.org. A lovely place. It's, it is a lovely place. <laughs> I quite like it there. Uh, and that's all we have for you this week. Thanks to my co-hosts and to you, the listeners. Be sure to join us again next week for more Consilience. Listening to Consilience. Our website is consiliencecast.wordpress.com and you can send us an email to consiliencecast at gmail.com. Theme music is The Optimist by Zoe Keating from freemusicarchive.org. <laughs>